Hello, and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture in order. This is the Academy Archives, and this week we're discussing Academy Award-winning film Chinatown and Academy Award-winning actress Ingrid Bergman. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's our producer, Kayla. Howdy. Hello. Hello, hello. It's us. We're back. The fan ups. <laughs> Who are fans of movies, that's for sure. Yeah. And we've got another fun Academy Archives for you today. Yeah. I'm always excited for these archive episodes. Huh. They're just so interesting to me because it gives me an opportunity to do my favorite thing, which is fixate on one person. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, that one person today is Ingrid Bergman. Yes, it is. I'm excited to talk about her because I didn't know much about her, but we have watched several of her movies and talked about her very briefly several times. Yeah, it's interesting. She has uh, a little comeback going right now in the 70s. Yep. Which is fun. And of course, I will be talking about the movie Chinatown, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people know about, but uh, we did not. We knew about it. I, mean, I knew about it. You, you know what the plot is? I know what the like vibe of it is. Hmm. All right. And the idea well, of it. You'll see. <laughs> okay. But first, we have a Bosley review. Yeah. Bosley review. Bosley's had a great week. He's got a new sweater, so he's nice and cozy for Christmas. Mm-hmm. And that has got him thinking about all kinds of things he wants to say about some of his favorite dog movies. Uh-huh. So today, Bosley has a review for you about a Academy Award-nominated movie, did not win, that we have not talked about. Okay. Because <laughs> why would we talk about this movie? But it's made a huge cultural impact. I did briefly mention it in one of our archive episodes because one of the people I've talked about was in it. Okay. Do you know where I'm going with this? I don't believe I do. All right. Bosley has a review today for you for the film Lassie Come Home. <gasps> Bosley. Starring Pal. Wow. The Border Collie. Yeah. So Pal, of course, is the star of this film, but was not the original star. So to back it up a little bit, just so you have some context, this film was nominated for Best Cinematography in Color in 1944. It was the first... Uh film to use three strip technicolor you're right exactly so i guess we did talk about it i mentioned it you as mentioned a news it. item yes. all right <laughs> um and the character of lassie does have a star in the hollywood walk of fame okay mm-hmm. so to give you a little a little bit about pal yes so pal was born at cherry osborne's glom kennels in north hollywood wow. on june 4th 1940 he is the son of red brucey of glom and bright bobble of glom Okay. Uh, and his ancestry is traced to the 19th century and England's first great collie, Old Cocky. Oh, my. So he... <laughs> wow. Yeah. So what he, a lineage. He has a very proud lineage. I see. Um, because of his large eyes and the white blaze on his forehead, he's considered the highest standard of the dog. Mm. So when he was a little puppy... Howard Peck, an animal trainer, brought him at eight months to another animal trainer, Rudd Weathermax, because he was having an issue. And the mm. issue was that he could not break him of his uncontrolled barking and his bad habit of chasing motorcycles. Oh, my. So uh, Rudd Weathermax worked with him for quite a while, was able to break the barking, but never was able to break him of chasing motorcycles. He just had a thing oh, for it. Oh, that's dangerous. I know. So there was a movie happening. 
and there was a nationwide hunt for a, for a dog to play Lassie, mm-hmm. um, in which MGM called in Rudd Weatherwax to help train the female collie that they had playing the role. Right. Unfortunately, there's a scene in the movie in which there's a huge flood and the dog has to go into the water and then come out exhausted. Mm-hmm. And the female collie that they had for this film was too scared to do it. She oh. just refused, 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 refused. And he was like, listen... My dog, Pal, is who was on site with him because it was his personal dog, was like, he's really good at stuff like this. I bet he could do it. And so they're like, all right, let's go for it. So they did this scene where Pal would jump into the water, swim the river, haul himself out, and then lie down without shaking the water out of his coat. Oh, my. And then lie there motionless as if he was exhausted, almost dead. Hmm. He did it. No wow. problems. He just, like, listened and just did it. So, of course, he got the role. They just, like release the other girl and then kept him as the main dog <laughs> classic hollywood <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh and i meant to say the person i've talked about who's in this movie of course is elizabeth taylor yeah mm-hmm. uh, oh and it's so funny uh weatherwax red weatherwax has of course written a like biography about or an autobiography about his life and mm. pal and all that stuff and in it he says that director fred m wilcox was so impressed during the sequence as they filmed it that he had tears in his eyes oh <laughs> So Pal retired at the age of five. He was in several of the movies, um, and then almost all of the the subsequent Lassie movies use his direct descendants. Mm -hmm. Um, He earned a salary of $250 per week, while Elizabeth Taylor was only paid $100 a week. I mean, she was a small child. Yes. And what's funny is that the number of purebred collies registered in the U.S. during the 1940s increased from 3,000 to 18,400 because wow. of this franchise. Mm-hmm. And to finish off our little uh, section here, I have a review from Bosley Crowther, the human, oh. <laughs> from the New York Times on October 8th, 1943. He said about this film that it, quote, tells the story of a boy and a dog, tells it with such poignance and simple beauty that only the hardest heart can fail to be moved. Ah, so sweet. So and then sweet. what did Bosley, our pup, think? Bosley gives this the highest of tail wags. Ah. He thoroughly enjoyed the fearless performances. And loved the dynamic performance that Pal was able to give of a dead dog after a huge adventure. Wow. Two very tall tail wags. Two tall tail wags, straight from Bosley. Wow. Good job, Bos. Yeah. High praise. (laughs) And that's a Bosley review. Uh, so I guess I'll take over now. Great. uh, After that riveting review from Bosley. um, And talk about Chinatown. All right. Of course, this comes from the year of 1974, the same year that the illustrious Godfather Part II was released, uh, among other famous movies, and was nominated for 11 Academy Awards at the 47th Academy Awards, and it only won one. Wild. So pretty interesting. Uh, First, I'll go ahead and give a recap. It, of course, always contains spoilers, uh, so... Sorry to those who have not seen. You've had 40 years to watch it, so... Yes, it does have quite a few twists. So they're being spoiled now. A woman who introduces herself as Evelyn Mulray hires private investigator Jake Giddis to follow her husband Hollis because she suspects he's having an affair. Giddis follows Hollis around, learning that he is the chief engineer for the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. He photographs him with a young woman and releases the photos to the paper. Hollis's real wife, Evelyn, shows up at Jake's office to confront him, threatening to sue. 
Confused, Jake goes to the reservoir to look for clues and learns that Hollis is dead. Evelyn then hires Jake to help her find the truth. Jake learns that Hollis is a former business partner of Noah Cross, Evelyn's father. Cross offers to double what Evelyn is paying him if he'll look for the first woman that claimed to be Evelyn. Giddis keeps being forced off the water department, being threatened and attacked. He learns that someone has bought up much of the land in the valley, hoping to reroute water to L.A. He believes that Hollis learned of this plot and was murdered because of it. He finds the first woman, Ida Sessions, but she's been killed as well. After following Evelyn one day, Giddis runs into the woman Hollis was photographed with, Evelyn's daughter, Catherine, through her own father when he raped her and forced her to give birth. Giddis tries to help Evelyn and her daughter escape, Cross and his goons quickly catching up with them. When they all meet up in Chinatown with the police in tow, Evelyn is shot and killed, leaving Cross to take Catherine. One of Jake's associates tells him to just forget about what he's been through. It isn't worth the trouble. It's just Chinatown, Jake. (laughs) (laughs) So, this uh, film had a budget of $6 million, and it grossed about $30 million. So, not hugely financially successful, um, but it is very, very popular film, even today. It's considered one of the best films of all time still. It's in a lot of the, like, best of lists for multiple reasons. And, of course, a very... Uh, highly praised star vehicle for Jack Nicholson. Yes. That's what I mostly know about this movie. Yeah. So uh, Robert Evans is a producer. I may have mentioned him once or twice before, um, but in the 70s, he's a studio executive and head of Paramount and a major producer. Um, He's one of the people who helped put Paramount back on the map in the 70s. Ah. So we've sort of been, you know, towing around the Paramount story And they are involved, of course, in The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2 and Francis Ford Coppola. So we've mentioned Paramount a few times. They were recently acquired by Gulf and Western. Um, So more about Paramount today because they also produced Chinatown. Robert Evans uh, joined the film industry when he was discovered by Norma Shearer next to the pool at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Oh, She wanted to cast him in the film Man of a Thousand Faces, playing her late husband, Irving G. Thalberg. Oh, my goodness. um, Who she thought that he bore a slight resemblance to. Interesting. And they're both producers, right? Or he wasn't a producer He wasn't, yeah. Okay. So she just saw him and was like, you sort of look like my husband, (laughs) and we're about to make this film about him, so would you want to play him? (laughs) That's funny. She's got a a sense for a good producer. Yeah. So this is in the 50s. Um, He ended up acting in a few other films, did some voiceover work, um, but was like very critical of his own performances. He didn't think he was a very good actor. Mm. Um, So he pivoted into producing and he was a great producer. There ended up being a major write-up done on him in the New York Times uh, and also about the first film he produced, The Detective, in 1968 um, that caught the attention of Charles Bloodhorn, who was then the head of Gulf and Western, which, of course, there you go. just recently purchased Paramount in 1966. Um, Bloodhorn decided to interview Evans and then hired him as the vice president of production at Paramount. Mm. So he'd only wow. produced one film, and wow. then now he's the... Uh, Vice President of Production. Wow. Dreams do come true in Hollywood. Yes. After being discovered by Norma Shearer next oh, to a pool. <laughs> I'm going to start hanging out at the pool more. <laughs> um, in his first few years there, he helped to oversee the major production overhaul 
taking Paramount from the ninth highest earning studio in 1966 to the top two wow. uh, by 1973. Um, so some of the films that led to this were Barefoot in the Park, The Odd wow. Couple, Rosemary's Baby, The Italian Job, True Grit, Love Story, Harold and Maude, and then, of course, The Godfather. All over the place. Yeah, but uh, three or four of those were the top grossing movies of the year that they were released also. Wow, so, that's crazy. So pretty crazy for Paramount and for Evans, and lucky for Gulf and Western. <laughs> Quite. Uh, by 1972, Evans was unimpressed by his current salary, considering the newfound success for Paramount, um, and decided to work out a deal that he would remain executive vice president of worldwide production at Paramount with a raise, but also he would be allowed to work as a producer himself on five films. Okay. Um, and one of those five was Chinatown. Nice. So one of the screenwriters that was currently working closely with Paramount and specifically with Francis Ford Coppola um, was Robert Town. He was working mostly as a script doctor at the time and had done a lot of work on the screenplay for Bonnie and Clyde, uh, oh. which is sort mm -hmm. of what helped get him more recognition. Um, and then Coppola even thanked him in his Oscar speech for best screenplay for The Godfather. Nice. Um, saying that he had contributed in some ways to the screenplay that really helped. Cool. Um, he was approached by Robert Evans to write the script for The Great Gatsby, which also came out in 1974, um, for a sum of $175,000. Wow. Um, he turned down this offer saying he didn't feel that he could live up to Fitzgerald's own writing. Mm, so that's how I would feel too. Yeah. So he did <laughs> not want to do it. Um, but he said he had a different original story that he would write for only $25,000. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I mean, I would have asked for more if I knew I could have gotten 175 oh my for gosh. that. But uh, So he pitched Chinatown to Evans instead. Then, of course, Evans gave Gatsby to Francis Ford Coppola to write. There you go. Which he wrote uh, very successfully. Town had recently read Carrie McWilliams' book called Southern California Country, An Island on the Land, um, which was about the history of L.A., um, the famed L.A. water wars, um, and the transformation of like the desert farming communities into a sprawling metropolis. Town later wrote that this book, Southern California Country, quote, really changed my life. It taught me to look at the place where I was born and convinced me to write about it. Hmm. So he wrote the story as an exploration of the city, uh, but also for his friend, Jack Nicholson, um, hoping he would be able to play the lead. Hmm. So he totally based the character of Giddis on, like, Jack Nicholson's personality. Nice. He then took the title... Um, Chinatown and the exchange. So there's an exchange in the film. One character says, what did you do in Chinatown? And then uh, Giddis says, as little as possible, which is just a famous exchange. And constantly Giddis is saying that he worked in Chinatown. He used to work in Chinatown, blah, 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 all this stuff about Chinatown. And then it ends up that the plot takes us to Chinatown in the final moments of the film, of course. All of this stuff about Chinatown came from a Hungarian vice cop um, who Town ran into and interviewed one time um, who had worked in Chinatown in L.A. and explained that because of the diverse gangs and dialects and people that came and went in Chinatown, 
it was really hard for the police to know how to respond to things that were happening there. Mm. Um, and one of the reasons was because they didn't know if they were really helping people or making things worse. Interesting. So what did you do in Chinatown as little as possible? Mm. So that's where all of that comes from. Interesting. So then the other major facet of this, of course, is the water wars in L.A. (laughs) Which is a very specific thing. And a very, very interesting. Um, So I did a bunch of reading up on this. Uh, I, too, am fascinated about the places where I live. Uh, So, of course, this movie really, like, got to me. Um, Both when I lived in Philly and then now in L.A., I just, like... I don't know. I just want to know everything there is to know about the history of the cities. Yeah, you know more about Philly than I do when I grew up there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the engineers, both of them in the film, so there's Hollis Mulray and then Claude Mulvihill, who takes over for Mulray after Mulray's death. They're both based on the famed William Mulholland, of course. Uh, interestingly, both of their last names start with M-U-L, like Mulholland, Mulray, Mulvihill, Mulholland. Uh, He was the chief engineer of the L.A. Department of Water and Power and oversaw the construction of the L.A. aqueduct that brought water over 200 miles from the Central Valleys in California to Los Angeles. There's lots of other crazy stuff. I mean, Mulholland is very praised in some of the things that he was able to do for L.A., like A lot of the infrastructure of L.A. wouldn't exist without him. Mm. But then there's a lot of other things that kind of went wrong and like shady business dealings, buying up the land from farmers and Mm -hmm. sort of tricking people and draining rivers that were in like central California so that L.A. could have water because it was in a desert. All kinds of just craziness. And this is all part of the plot of Uh the film then. Sounds very American. Yeah. Um, So the film, of course, is set during the mid-30s in L.A. when some of this is meant to be happening. And then Mulholland ended up sort of losing his career after a dam broke and washed into the Santa Clara Valley and killed over 400 people. And this, like, dam breaking is referenced in the plot of the film as well. So um, Hollis, the character is like, you know, oh, I had that accident before the dam broke and I don't want to repeat my mistakes. And, you know, he's uncovering his own plot of things happening. So anyways, read about the water wars in LA (laughs) because that is very fun. Um, Very interesting, like, I don't know, sociopolitical history Mm -hmm. for a city with intrigue and plots and killing and all kinds of stuff. That got all adapted and worked into this story. Yeah, sounds like it'd make a good movie. Yeah, it's very, (laughs) very interesting. Um, So then we have Roman Polanski hearing about the film uh, through his friend, Jack Nicholson, uh, because he was currently looking for a script that they could both work on together. Um, Of course, at the time, he's no longer living in L.A. because he left four years prior because of the murder of his wife, Sharon Tate, and their unborn child by the Manson family. He also has not really stepped in the hot water of what is to come the rest of his, like, haunts the rest of his career. So we can talk about that at a later time. Of course, now he's known as a very problematic director and person. 
So Robert Evans thought that he would be perfect because he liked the more accurate take on American cities that foreign directors had. Yeah. Um, So we talked about this when we talked about Midnight Cowboy. Right. He felt that Polanski would be able to more accurately capture the feelings of L.A. than other people who were from America or from L.A. in Mm -hmm. general. Town, Robert Town, the writer, and Polanski butted heads over the ending with the original ending being a lot more hopeful and happy with Cross getting his due and Geddes, Evelyn, and Catherine escaping in the end. Um, But Polanski felt that it should end very tragically, and he won out, which is why Evelyn dies and Catherine is taken by Cross and Geddes is unable to stop it. And I'm guessing that also stems from his own, like, personal trauma. Right. He has had a major personal tragedy in which he could not save people or anything. Yeah. yeah, makes a lot more sense. Um, so, you know, I'm sure he did not see L.A. in the best light. Um, and yeah. And I'm sure he still does not. Anyways. Another, like, butting heads uh, was the cinematographer. Evans had not approved uh, Polanski's hire of cinematographer William Fraker, who had worked with Polanski on Rosemary's Baby. Um, so Evans decided to replace the cinematographer at the last minute. Um, Stanley Cortez was hired and shot for the first week or two, but it was determined that he was too slow and some of the rushes were way too dark. Like he didn't understand the lighting that they wanted. Mm. So instead, John A. Alonzo was hired and then he shot the rest of the film. And one interesting like story technique that they used, especially with the cinematography, is that the film is all told from a singular point of view. Um, So the entire story is seen through Geddes as the character. Um, And he appears in every single scene of the film. Gotcha. And this is something that is sort of new to Hollywood. Mm. Um, Funny enough, the conversation, which also came out this same year, which was a Coppola-produced film, also by Paramount, the same thing is happening in that film, Mm -hmm. where it's all told from the main character's point of view, and the main character is in every single scene. Yeah, interesting. And this is not very common up to this point in Hollywood. I guess that's that's true. That makes sense to me. I it's so common now to see movies that way. It feels like a little bit of a trope, but obviously they all have to be innovated. Mm -hmm. Well, and one of the main like times that this really affects the editing too is Geddes gets knocked out Ah. so the film fades to black only once in the film and that's when it happens and then when he like wakes up again he's in the next jump of time to wherever so just an interesting thing that like is very common nowadays in film but this is sort of when it's getting its popularity Mm -hmm. Um, another very important element of the film is their score, uh, which was composed and arranged by Jerry Goldsmith. Um, It was composed and recorded in only 10 days, which is pretty crazy, after another last-minute change by Evans, um, who just really, really wants to be in control of everything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Of course, it ended up being nominated for an Oscar, and it still ranks number nine on AFI's top 25 film scores. Nice. So only 10 days of work got him a lot of recognition. (laughs) (laughs) Critics, of course, really rave over this film, especially Jack Nicholson's performance. Um, He's like really coming into his own in Hollywood, Mm. especially because of this film, um, but especially because of his next major film, which will be awarded Best Picture. Oh, I'm so freaking excited. At the next Academy Awards. Partly, I would say, because he is growing in popularity. Sure, yeah, yeah. Well, and he's proving himself and getting the recognition and yeah. whatever. 
One other thing that I just want to mention about this, this is when Polanski is becoming more and more problematic in the public eye. Of course, it will come even more problematic once things come out about his rape of a minor. But Faye Dunaway had a lot of problems with him as well. So I just want to read a quote about her experience working with him on the film. Um, She was amazing in the film as Mm -hmm. well. And she is not as tied to the film in like throughout historical, like looking back Mm. as Jack Nicholson is. Sure. Of course, she's not in as much of of the film as he is, but partly because she just tried to distance herself from it. A little bit about her experience. Quote, The friction between us began from the start. During the makeup test, Lee Harmon, who was my makeup man, had finished, and Roman came by to check on it. He wasn't happy. He wanted me paler than I already was, though my skin is extremely pale to begin with. And instead of explaining what he wanted, he just started striding around saying, no, 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 I want it like this, as he grabbed the powder and began covering my face with it. The effect was awful, but his methods were worse. I came away from that encounter thinking he was a bully. Now I think what he did to me throughout the film bordered on sexual harassment. So her experience was not very good on this film and she did not like working with him. And of course, many other women throughout history have said how horrible (laughs) he is to women as well. So just want to throw in that as well. I don't think that this film is successful because of him. Um, I think it is successful because it's a very good script by Robert Town. And very good performance by Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of the success of the film is due to them as opposed to Polanski. Yeah. It's hard as we are in a time now in film history where there's just a lot more information that we have access to about people's personal lives and behaviors. Mm-hmm. And we're about to encounter, if we haven't already, many people whose, you know, abuses come out while they're in the height of their career and I think that it's challenging to talk about some of those people I'm like nervous as we're gonna get to like Annie (laughs) Hall and stuff soon I'm like you know so I think that all that has to be taken with a grain of salt and um, uh, the people who did work hard on this film deserve the praise and recognition for it and the people that abuse their power I don't know should rescind that (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then last but not least, I'll just mention the awards that it was nominated for and won. Of course, it was nominated for Best Picture. It was nominated for Best Director for Roman Polanski, Best Actor for Jack Nicholson, Best Actress for Faye Dunaway, Best Original Screenplay for Robert Town, which is the only award that it won. Okay. Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Costume Design, Best Film Editing, Best Original Dramatic Score, and best sound. And I would say it's one of the best, and critics say this as well, so it's not just me, <laughs> uh, but it's one of the best what are considered like the neo-noir films. Mm. Um, very, very indicative of the early Hollywood noirs. Um, yeah. It just also plays into the whole thing of like the secret plots, what's going on with the government, what's going on and how does it affect the regular people? You know, the government is being run by business people and being persuaded to do things that are not exactly right or moral by the people with all the money and the power. And, you know, 
how does that affect us as a society? And they're, they say they're doing it for the greater good, but are they really? <laughs> and it's very interesting in that sense, too. You know, we talked about that a little bit in the previous episode about The Godfather Part Two, and how there's not any films yet really about the Vietnam War or right. what's going on with Richard Nixon and Watergate and, you know, how other things are coming soon, like the AIDS crisis because of, you know, lack of involvement or too much involvement by the government. There's the war on drugs that the Republican Party is about to throw against people because of racism. So there's a lot coming, and a lot of these films are exploring them thematically, not but explicitly not explicitly. Yet. Yeah. Um, which is a big shift from you know, World War II and things that were happening there. It's a lot more like the films that dealt with the Red Scare. Yeah. So it'll be interesting as we keep moving forward through Mm -hmm. the 70s and the 80s just to see, like, this growing disillusionment of American society from Hollywood Mm, and how they deal with it. Mm-hmm. 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 So that's what I have to say about Chinatown. <laughs> um, it's definitely a movie you should go see. I mean, people know that. <laughs> it's considered one of the best American movies ever made. Um, and I would say it still really holds up. There's a lot of really interesting intrigue. Um, it's a really fun private investigator story. Very fun, like, sort of based on historical things in Los Angeles. Do you think if it was another year, it could have won Best Picture? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, just Godfather Part 2 has a little heavyweight power there. I definitely think it would have beaten The Sting. Ah, sure, sure, yeah. But it would have been close. It would be interesting to to know what they would have done with it Mm -hmm. next to The Sting. You know, I think it compares to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is the next winner. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how it matched up to other ones. Yeah. I think if it came before The Godfather, I don't know if it would have beat The French Connection. It's very similar to that as well. Yeah. So, yeah. I I mean, and it makes sense. It's exactly... It's in the same vein as all these movies. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, it makes sense that it was made and was very successful. Mm -hmm. And as we've said a thousand times, winning an Oscar is not indicative of true across the board amazingness no but i think it won the one it it won the one that i would give it that's good which was Mm -hmm. for writing because it was a very original story cool yeah yeah so why don't we shift gears a little and hear about ingrid bergman yeah so i'm talking about her today she is a, a little bit of a blast from the past here I, yeah, I'm. I know I should have talked about her earlier, and I kind of missed my opportunity to. But, but she's having a big comeback. Exactly. The reason I want to talk about her is she won Best Supporting Actress the year we were talking about for Murder on the Orient Express. Huzzah! It's her final win, and so I figure if I'm going to talk about her now is my opportunity. Yeah. She does get one more nomination after this, but mm-hmm. you know, now is the time. So just to give you a little overview, she is a Triple Crown acting award winner so she has an emmy a tony and an oscar all for acting performances Mm -hmm. she's won three oscars been nominated for five total yeah so let's get into her life a little bit also i will say i didn't really know much about her yeah she's very interesting she's she's a very like mysterious person in a lot of ways because she's a very simple person Mm -hmm. and yet has a very like complicated life so 
And she was never like as bombastic as a lot of the other women around her who were very popular, like Betty Davis or Joan Crawford. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So she was born on August 29th, 1915 in Stockholm. Her father was Swedish. Her mother was German. And she was raised in Sweden, but summered in Germany. So she spoke both languages Mm -hmm. um, as a child. Um, She was raised as an only child. Uh, She did technically have two older siblings, but both of them died in infancy before she was born. Mm. Um, Her mother passed away when she was two. Mm -hmm. And then her father passed away when she was 14 of cancer, which then she was passed off to an aunt who died six months later of heart disease. And then she was passed off to other aunts and family members. So she had a very like tumultuous upbringing yeah but she did have a decent relationship with her father he was very supportive of her artistic endeavors he hoped she would be someone he sent her to a good private school he took tons of photographs of her and he's credited as being a person who helped her develop her own love for documenting things Mm. um she kept a very prolific diary throughout her life so she has like very detailed writings about her own personal life and her like inner monologue um and she also did a lot of just like video and photography of her own life just like for fun so there's Hmm. like um there's a couple documentaries including her own just personal archive work um, that her family has released so that's kind of cool and very just like pretty and artistic and i love that for her yeah Um, she received a sponsorship to the royal dramatic theater school which is where greta garbo went as well Uh just a few years earlier Um, And had also earned the same scholarship. Mm -hmm. After several months of being there, she was given a part in a new play called Et Brot, which I'm going to pronounce a bunch of stuff wrong today because it's Swedish, so bear with me. Uh But this translates to A Crime by Siegfried Seewerts. I'm hoping that's how you say that. And it was like not the way things were done. It was considered against the procedure of the school because the girls who were at this school were supposed to complete three years of study before taking on these kinds of acting roles. Um, But she did it anyways. During her first summer break from the school, she was hired by a Swedish film studio, which caused her to end up leaving the Royal Dramatic Theater Hmm. um, after just one year to work full-time in films. Mm, So there you go. Her first speaking role was a small part in the movie (laughs) Monkbrogue Revan in 1934. And soon after this, because she was very good in it. Um, she was offered a studio contract and placed under director Gustav Molander, who mm. became her like primary mentor through her early years. Mm-hmm. Um, she worked on a lot of different films throughout the 30s, um, all Swedish films uh, in her native language um, that were like kind of growing in popularity until finally she worked on the film Intermezzo, mm. directed by Molander. He said about this, quote, I created Intermezzo for her, but I was not responsible for its success. Ingrid herself made it successful. It did so well. It launched her to stardom. It also caused all of her other films to kind of take off as well. She was voted Sweden's most admired movie star. She started to receive top billing on the rest of her films after this. And she was given a like long-term studio contract. So she was kind of able to start negotiating for herself in a lot of ways, um, just to kind of like guarantee that she was getting what she wanted to do Mm. so you know she did several films during this time at a couple years into the contract she did the screwball comedy only one night and she did this because there was a film coming up that she really wanted to work on called and i'm not going to be able to pronounce this and kinva's and it translates to a woman's face 
Um, and she really wanted to do this role because it was going to be against her casting. So prior to this, she played a lot of kind of sweet roles, very feminine, um, kind of just like classic mm-hmm. woman roles. And she has a very classic look. So that's part of that. Mm-hmm. But this particular character was very bitter. Um, she was not someone that the audience was going to feel sympathetic towards. And her face was hideously burned. Like, that was part of the character's description. Interesting. Which required that she was going to have to wear heavy makeup, including glue, to, like, have a burned face. Hmm. And they even, because, of course, she got to do this film, they put a brace into her cheek so that it would distort the shape of one side of her face. yeah, right. Which was very, like, new technology at the time as well. So Mm -hmm. that was, like, pretty cool and innovative, but also just, like, very exciting for her. In her diary, she called the film, quote, my own picture, my very own. I have fought for it. Mm -hmm. Because she just loved this. She loved the artistic endeavor. She loved going against the grain of what she had been doing before. And lucky for her, the critics loved it as well. Um, They gave her great reviews. It was very popular. Um, The film was awarded a special recommendation at the 1938 Venice Film Festival for its overall artistic contribution. And it ended up being remade in 1941, just a couple years later by MGM, with the same title, but starring Joan Crawford as the this character. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. And I say that because at the time, she was still only in Sweden and um, right. Germany. So right after this, um, she signed a three-year picture contract with UFA, which was a German, like a major German film company. Uh, and she did this in 1938. Note. Uh-oh. 1938 in Germany. (laughs) So she made one picture, um, but she really didn't have any idea what was going on. She moved to Germany to do this. She didn't really comprehend the social situation or the political situation. And she said about this later, quote, I saw very quickly that if you were anybody at all in films, you had to be a member of the Nazi party. Mm. And so as soon as this first film was released, she was pregnant with her first daughter and she left Germany altogether and didn't complete the rest of her contract and make any more films there. Mm. And by the September of that year, she had moved back to Sweden. Sure. So when she moved back, she gave birth to her daughter, Pia, and she never worked in Germany again. Her first acting role in the United States was the film Intermezzo, a love story, Ah. which was produced um, by David O. Selznick. Mm -hmm. So he, of course, saw the original film, loved it, wanted to remake it, and thought she could do it. Um, Mm. He thought that she was a very essential part of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he uh, brought her to the United States and tested her out, essentially, with this film. Gotcha. She was not able to speak English quite yet. She wasn't sure that she was going to be accepted by an American audience for several reasons. One, because American audiences were not very receptive to international stars at this time. Yes. And we <laughs> discussed that at length uh, during this time period on our yeah, podcast. A very, very hesitant, um, especially because she was part German. Yeah. She was very tall. She looked very German and Swedish. She had very thick, dark eyebrows that were not in vogue. And uh, people were unsure about her being accepted, including David O. Selznick. Mm -hmm. He tried to change her. He tried to have stylists come in, redo things for her. And she just simply refused. She didn't want to be made into someone that she would not recognize. Sure. I should also mention um, she was married at this time to um, Peter Aaron Lindstrom, who was a doctor and a very, very simple man. Very, very practical. He, like, didn't care for any of this stuff. Hmm. And so uh, he 
was a big part of her not really wanting to change her image. I will say it was more on the negative side, uh, which I'll talk about in a little bit, but um, it, he was not very supportive of these things, but also like she just didn't want to change too much about herself. Sure. But the good news about all of this was that she was wonderful. Mm-hmm. David Oselznik loved working with her. About her performance in this, he said, quote, Miss Bergman is the most completely conscientious actress with whom I've ever worked in that she thinks of absolutely nothing but her work before and during the time she's doing a picture. She practically never leaves the studio and even suggested that her dressing room be equipped so that she could live here during the picture. She never for a minute suggests quitting at the six o'clock or anything of the kind. And then he goes on to talk about how because they were filming Gone with the Wind at the exact same time, they didn't have the dressing rooms available for her to have a big dressing room like Vivian Lee did. Um, But she didn't care. She was so excited because she'd never even had a suite to begin with. Anyways, so he just loved working with her. Mm hmm. Um, lucky for both of them, Intermezzo was a great success. Um, and both the public and the people who worked with her just loved it. Apparently the crew behind the scenes would do anything for her. They were very quick to respond to her. They wanted to, you know, jump in and help her in any way that they can. Hmm. Bosley Crowther wrote about her in the New York Times saying, quote, picture the sweetheart of a Viking freshly scrubbed with ivory soap, eating peaches and cream from a Dresden China bowl on the first warm day of spring atop a sea scarred cliff and you have a fair impression of ingrid bergman oh my gosh <laughs> bosley <laughs> slightly ridiculous but very lovely and very visual mm-hmm. <laughs> so um because of this she moved to new york part-time she wanted to try her first broadway play um oh. so she moved to the new york to do that uh the play was titled lilium it was like a moderate success it was kind of just Fine, nothing to write home about. And shortly after she moved there, her husband decided to move to New York as well. But he moved outside in Rochester, um, where he continued to study medicine and surgery at the University of Rochester. And Ingrid Bergman then would travel kind of back and forth between New York City and Rochester to be with her family. And her visits would kind of vary, which is part of why they had some marital problems. Sometimes she would just be there for a couple days. Sometimes she'd be there for a couple months. It was all just kind of up in the air. In an article in Life, uh, they said about him that, quote, the doctor regards himself as the undisputed head of the family, an idea that Ingrid accepts cheerfully. And he was a little bit of a domineering personality. He did not like the glamour of Hollywood. He considered her very vain. And he really didn't see her the way that the rest of the world was starting to see her as this, like, very beautiful, glamorous movie star. Anyways, moving on to her career here. The Broadway play was okay, but Hollywood was kind of where it was at for her during this time. And this is kind of when she becomes a bigger star in the Hollywood machine. She did a series of successful films during this time, such as Adam Had Four Sons, Rage in Heaven, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, in which she was able to convince the studio to recast her as Ivy, who was like the bad barmaid character instead of the like pious good girl, Uh which is what she had been doing. But as we've said about her, she likes to play the roles that are contrary to the role she's been playing so Mm -hmm. she had a good time with that and it was very well received as well and on july 30th in 1941 she made her second stage appearance in anna christie and she in this she played a like uh, sex worker based on the play uh by eugene o'neill which also did very well for her so this all leads up to 1942 in which a film comes out that shook the world Casablanca. Yeah. So this, of course, is known as her best role. 
I don't need to go into this because there's a whole episode dedicated to this movie. Yeah. So feel free to listen to that if you want to learn about the making of that movie and the reception of that movie and the socio-political implications of that movie, blah, 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 blah. This was not her favorite performance. Mm-hmm. She said, quote, I made so many films which were more important, but the only one people ever want to talk about is that one with Bogart. <laughs> She just thought it was kind of boring for her, which admittedly it kind of is. It's not a very dynamic role for her. Of course, she's beautiful in it. She's sensual and sweet and all the things that make a good movie star. So, you know, it went really well for her. Sadly, as we did talk about during that episode, she did not even get an Oscar nomination. But what's funny is that that same year that Casablanca was nominated, she got a nomination just not for that film. She Mm -hmm. was nominated for the film For Whom the Bell Tolls. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is her next film, of course. And it did very well. She was nominated for her role in it. It was a great adaption. Yeah, whatever. Um, She followed that up with the film Gaslight. Yeah. In which she did win the Academy Award for Best Actress. Huzzah. So congrats to her. She finally got the big award. Uh, and this launches a great series of movies for her. Starting with Casablanca, after that you have For Whom the Bell Tolls, Gaslight, The Bells of St. Mary, Spellbound, and Notorious the latter two being Hitchcock films. Mm -hmm. And I talked about The Bells of St. Mary also in our last Christmas episode. Yes, our last holiday episode. Yeah. Um, Which she was nominated for, of course, for Best Actress as well. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to just mention, because she is a student of the craft, that during this time her acting teacher was Michael Chekhov. Oh, So that's where she's kind of getting her technique from. He's a Russian-style teacher, Mm -hmm. for those of you who don't know. Great. Very famous. Most acting students read his book at some point. And during this time, in 1946, she appears in Joan of Lorraine at the Alvin Theater in New York City. Mm. This is what she wins her Tony for. Huzzah! Yeah. So this was a very, very popular, well-received show. Tickets were fully booked for a 12-week run. Uh, They called her, quote, the Queen of Broadway because Mm -hmm. of how successful and wild it was. And part of it, I will say, and this is one of the things that does frustrate me sometimes about these, like, you know, movie stars doing Broadway stuff, people were coming to see her because she's at the height of her popularity. People were lining up outside the stage door to meet her after the show. I mean, that's why you book someone like her or someone very popular, (laughs) like (laughs) Philip Seymour Hoffman in uh, Death of a Salesman. Okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. (laughs) You got to bring in uh, the people. Yes, it's true. But apparently she was very good and she didn't earn her award for that. And then she followed this up with the film Joan of Arc, which was based on the play, Joan of Lorraine, uh-huh. um, which she was nominated for Best Actress. But alas, the film tanked. Uh-oh. Despite its critical success and its uh, Academy Award nominations, it was not publicly successful no. because a scandal broke. <gasps> no. So I'm going to get to this in just a second because they filmed this movie. Everything goes great with it. It takes a little bit of time for it to get released. So before it's released, she also works with Hitchcock for the film Under Capricorn. During which time, she writes to a certain director, Roberto Rossellini, um, whom she was really hoping to work with because she's starting to catch wind of him. So she writes with him, uh, and then they begin working on a film in 1949, uh, the film being Stromboli. Mm-hmm. During this time, they begin to have an affair, and she becomes pregnant with their first child. Uh, what is unfortunate for everyone, of course, everyone knows that she's married. She has a daughter already. This affair is revealed during the time in which Joan of Arc starts its premieres. Mm-hmm. And there is a huge issue because you have her playing literally Joan of Arc, like the holiest saint. 
the epitome of purity. Well, not as holy as Mary. Okay, okay. It's, I'm, I'm, okay. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> well, she's up there. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, she has this affair, which results in a pregnancy out of wedlock, uh, all this stuff. And for some reason, which I just don't understand, it just like has the most publicity. It's absolutely scandalous to an astronomical level. It doesn't make any sense to me why this particular scandal bursts out. Well, but it probably does. because her image is very different from other people who are like famed Hollywood celebrities. Yeah. Well, and she talks about it a lot, how one of the things that she says about her life is that she's playing these saints you know she's playing a Mm -hmm. nun she's playing saint joan she's playing these people who are like very very wholesome and what you know the general public is loving her as and then they're painting her as a sinner and a whore and all these things because she has a regular human being life and also she makes some mistakes she had a lot of like affairs throughout her life which i'll talk about in a little bit but let's talk about this specific scandal so it broke and unfortunately it like caused a lot of turmoil in the united states and in sweden in the united states it started to bring about a new wave of xenophobia of this fear of outsiders so roberto rossellini of course is an italian director And then she is a Swedish actress. This affair was such a huge scandal in the United States that it caused Senator Edwin C. Johnson to bring up denouncing her at the United States Senate. Um, So on March 14th in 1950, he insisted that she had, quote, perpetrated an assault upon the institution of marriage. And he went so far as to call her, quote, a powerful influence for evil. Oh, my. And as I was saying about how... They started to talk more and more about outsiders and international people being a part of the problem in America. He said about this, quote, under the law, no alien guilty of turpitude can set foot on American soil again. He also said that she had, quote, deliberately exiled herself from the country that was so good to her Hmm. because she also chose to leave the country at this time because of how intense things got for her. She was very close friends with some people in the Hollywood industry, like Cary Grant, Helen Hayes, um, also Ernest Hemingway and John Steinbeck. They all supported her. They all said that this was insane, that the public scandal was ridiculous and were on her side, kind of trying to help her, especially Cary Grant, talk her through the situation because they had gotten close from working together before. Mm. Unfortunately, it also got a lot of attention in Sweden. She was treated very, very badly by the Swedish press. Some Swedish journalists went as far as to claim that she destroyed the international reputation of Sweden. Um, They also wanted to denounce her, all these kinds of things. But what was interesting is that this scandal caused a rift in Sweden as well between the Swedish government and the conservatives and the feminist movement that was just starting to happen. A lot of feminists got on her side and were like, she is a free woman. We can't just like, you know, take her down because of her sexual exploits. They're different from her artistic endeavors. There's no need for us to denounce her as an actress because of her sex life. Hmm. So that kind of started to influence what feminists were doing in Sweden, which Hmm. is kind of interesting to me as well. Um, (laughs) She said about the scandal, because... Who better to talk about this than Ingrid Bergman herself? Quote, people saw me in Joan of Arc and declared me a saint. I'm not. I'm just a woman, another human being. So Hmm. tough times for her. This also really, really 
squashed her career during this time. Right. No one wanted to work with her except for Roberto Rossellini. She couldn't work in America or she left. Um, So all of that to get back on track. The movie Stromboli was released that same month. She gave birth to her son, Renato Roberto Ronaldo Giusto Giuseppe Rossellini. Okay. That is his, <laughs> his name. Um, a week after he was born, according to Mexican law, she divorced her husband, Peter Aaron Lindstrom. And then on May 24th in 1950, she married Roberto Rossellini by proxy. Hmm. So she did all this very quickly. Um, the movie's released. It does really well, actually, but unfortunately, like critically, it's it's decently well received. Unfortunately, because of all of the crazy negative publicity about it, the general public wants nothing to do with it. So it's a, it doesn't do very well publicly. Mm. Um, Bosley Crowther about this said, quote, after all the unprecedented interest that the picture Stromboli has aroused, it being, of course, the fateful drama in which Ingrid Bergman and Roberto Rossellini have made it comes as a startling anticlimax to discover that this wildly heralded film is incredibly feeble, inarticulate, uninspiring, and painfully banal. He also said that her character is, quote, never drawn with clear and revealing definition, due partly to the vagueness of the script and partly to the dullness and monotony in which Rossellini has directed her, quote. And I would argue that some of this comes out of a distaste for the scandal and for what was happening. Mm. Of course, the film has been reconsidered in recent years as a very well-made film. It's also a very important part of a new wave of film that's happening internationally, which I'll talk about in just a second. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been added to the most important Italian films list. It's been added to Sight and Sound 250. It's been added to the Criterion Collection. It's an important movie in film history. And, you know, it's kind of had a little bit of a revisitation in recent years Mm -hmm. but of course when the scandal happens nobody wants anything to do with it this kind of tanks her career as i said to follow this up in 1953 roberto rossellini directs her in the play joan of arc at the stake um they start they start this in naples italy they take it to barcelona london paris and stockholm does not do super well Hmm. no one's really interested in this it's kind of like perceived as like an attempt to claim it and people don't want to see that they don't want to see Joan of Arc you know by her anymore yeah but this time period in which she and Roberto Rossellini begin to make several films together is considered the start of the French New Wave uh it's the start of a new style of films in which um Rossellini implements this sort of neo-realist style where he uses non-professional actors it doesn't go over super well everywhere. It's kind of like this weird subset of the culture that's happening. Um, but it's an important part of film history that's worth mentioning. Mm. I, a lot of critics were confused about why Ingrid Bergman was doing this, why she was doing films in which she was treated non-professionally. Huh. Like they weren't giving her fully formed scripts or the glamour or the luxuries that like people normally had on a film set and were instead trying to only like have like real life, real emotions, real situations, real reactions, like stuff like that. Huh. So weird. Yeah. So, you know, there's a little bit of confusion, but everyone needs an artistic break. And this was hers. In 1956, she returns to America finally for 20th Century Fox's Anastasia. Um, And this marks her comeback. It is a great performance for her. She ends up winning the Oscar. The movie is really well received and people are, well, well, of course, part of that is she's playing a princess. Yes. (laughs) A very pure role, um, a very tragic role as well. You know, all that kind of stuff. And people are like, all right, all right. I guess she can come back. She can Mm. do this again. 
She made her very first post-scandal public appearance in Hollywood at the 30th Academy Awards in 1959, the year after she won as a presenter for the award for Best Picture. And she received a standing ovation when she was introduced. Hmm. And this kind of marks her welcome back to Hollywood. So anyways, just to kind of wrap up the rest of her career, because of course she does a lot of interesting stuff. I'm not going to deny that, but that's the majority of the things that people would know her for. Mm -hmm. Um, She made her television debut on an episode of Star Time, which is an anthology show. And her episode, The Turn of the Screw, won an Emmy. Mm -hmm. So that's how she won her Emmy. Her star was added to the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1960. She and Robert Rossellini divorced in 1957. It was not a long-lived fling or marriage or anything, but they Mm -hmm. did have two children together. After this, she marries her third husband, Lars Schmidt, who's a producer. He produced Hedda Gabler for the TV with her. Um, She also played the role on stage later on as well. Mm -hmm. And moving on into the time period which we are in now, she continued to do a lot of movies and a lot of plays. She kind of becomes a dual stage and screen actor. She does some very classic movies, like from the mixed-up files of Miss Basil E. Frankweiler. Mm -hmm. She does Murder on the Orient Express. Mm -hmm. And one of her most popular films for artistic reasons, Autumn Sonata, an Mm -hmm. Ingmar Bergman film. Yeah. I just want to mention this about Murder on the Orient Express, since that is why I wanted to talk about her today. Director Sidney Lumet had offered her the role of the princess in it because he felt like that was the biggest role and she could win an Oscar for it. But she insisted on playing the smaller role of Greta Olsen, who is the Swedish missionary. He said about this, quote, she had chosen a very small part and I couldn't persuade her to change her mind. Since her part was so small, I decided to film her one big scene where she talks for almost five minutes straight, all in one long take. Mm. A lot of actresses would have hesitated over that. She loved the idea and made the most of it. She ran the full gamut of emotions. I've never seen anything like it. And Mm. of course, she ended up winning. Mm Mm-hmm. And I wanted to mention, too, that when she won the Oscar for this role in her speech, she says that uh, Valentina Cortese should have won instead of her, Mm. um, that she deserved it for her role in Day to Night. And the two of them spent the rest of the night together socializing. So all their pictures are together because she was very supportive of her. That's funny. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention is um, a little bit of her sinner, saint persona. Um, one of the things that she's well known for now in retrospect that was not very publicly known during the time of her life Mm -hmm. were her many affairs. Mm -hmm. Um, some people that she had affairs with were Spencer Tracy, Gary Cooper, who said, quote, no one loved me more than Ingrid Bergman. But the day after filming concluded, I couldn't even get her on the phone. (laughs) Uh, musician Larry Adler, Anthony Quinn, photographer Robert Kappa and Gregory Peck, Mm -hmm. most of whom she worked with on a film. Yeah. But of course, she's not known for that. She's known for her acting and her beautiful face and her natural poise. She redefined beauty in the 40s for women. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, Casablanca is essential in that image. When you think of 40s fashion, you're thinking of her in that movie. Mm -hmm. She redefined what it was to be a natural woman. A lot of the women during her time who were the biggest stars wore full face of makeup, had a lot of glam done to make them very beautiful. And she kept a very natural style, which was very essential. And the same thing was true in her acting. It was a very natural, grounded, simple, evocative style of performance, Mm -hmm. which is why she became famous and why she has three Oscars to her name. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I learned a lot. Yeah, did you know anything about her? Only a little bit. Yeah, me too. The brief things that we have talked about in, you know, earlier episodes long yeah. ago. Yeah. 
Uh, but with that, we come to our final segment, the thanking of the Academy, mm-hmm. in which we like to thank the Academy for things relating to this film, the people that we talk about. Um, I will go first, and I will thank the Academy for being inspired by your own location. <laughs> Something Zach feels on the daily. Yeah, I just think it's really cool to know about where you live. I mean, you should if you live there. Like, I don't know. I just feel a personal pride about that. (laughs) Uh, So it's fun to see this. You know, he was inspired by this book that he read, The Southern California Country, uh, which I am interested in reading now. (laughs) Of course, it was written in the 40s, so I don't know. Probably very different. Yeah. Uh, but it's obviously closer to the history that it's being, you know, portraying. Um, but I just think that's really interesting to, you know, learn about where he's from and want to write about it and turn some of that, like, historical intrigue into a very interesting plot. Yeah, for sure. So good for him. I would like to thank the Academy for going against the grain and playing roles uh-huh. that aren't your normal roles. It's always fun when someone does that and can do a good job at it. Some people can't, and that's okay too. Like some people have something they do well and that's what they should continue to do. Well, it's a really interesting way to like exploit yourself. Of course, yeah, right. And I feel like a lot of the time when people do that, they get away with a little bit more than they Mm. would if they normally played those characters because people are so surprised that it gives you a little edge. Mm -hmm. It gives you a little bit of mysteriousness to the character because they're like how is how can she be this you know Mm -hmm. which is funny because i remember thinking when i watched the bells of saint mary like in context that to me felt like a weird role for her to play yeah whereas at that point in time that's what she was that was what she was known Mm -hmm. for so it's interesting and i think she must i mean obviously she did a good job of picking and choosing roles Mm -hmm. and getting to play ones that were on and off type for her. Yeah. Well, and there's also a very clear theme in her life of the public seeing her one way and her being a fully formed woman and having to fight to mm. play fully formed women in movies. Mm-hmm. Um, because nothing about her is abnormal. I mean, she is a Hollywood woman. If she was a man doing all these exact same things, no one would think twice about it. But well, and care. also it is a different time too in that, like, People don't know much about Hollywood stars' lives right. during this time in general. Yeah. So when those things come to light, it's very shocking, especially right. if all you know of the person is the parts they play. Of course, for sure. Um, my final thanks goes to being in the right place at the right time to become a star. <laughs> like uh, Robert Evans, yeah. just lounging at the pool one day when Norma Shearer walks by and thinks that he looks a little bit like her husband, Irving Thalberg. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that's a compliment or not. Yeah, I don't know. And it's in the 50s, so it's like long after he's died, too. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Just a weird thing. And then being in the right place at the right time, of course, he got that write-up in the New York Times about him that mm-hmm. got him popular. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, I mean, these stories are as old as time in Hollywood in particular. Yeah. yeah. It just feels like they're made up, and it's so weird when they're not. Well, and there are very, like, there are a lot of them, but for how many people have worked in Hollywood, they are so few and far between. Yes. Yeah. So, anyways, <laughs> uh, thanks for that. Um, and I would like to thank the Academy for playing the same person over and over and over. 
Ingrid Bergman really had a fascination with Joan of Arc and uh, yeah, played her like four times. There so. are some actors who like cannot let characters go. Yeah. It's interesting to me. I mean, and I, I mean, Joan of Arc is a very great character. Yeah. I mean, not just for like the religious purposes, but like just in terms of like her story is super interesting. Mm-hmm. Everyone is intrigued by it. So I understand that. Yeah. And also there's like this weird dichotomy of like, the most pious and like pure woman. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's interesting that she's played her in several different periods of her life. Yeah. So anyways, just interesting to me. Yeah, very. And with that, we leave you. Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining us again. Yeah. And just a note on our programming over the next uh, little while here. Our next episode will be holiday theme. Huzzah! It'll be coming out right before the holiday week. So we figure may as well just do that. Mm-hmm. December 22nd. And then that will be our last episode until sometime later in January. Yeah. We'll see you in 2023 after that. Woo. Bear with us. Have a great break then. But we will be back next week, so don't have a great break yet. Yeah, have a great break (laughs) for a week and then listen to our holiday episode. Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinger. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.